back to the podcast on Mission for God in the Real World. I'm your host, Madeline Bertu, and I'm so excited that you're listening in today. Today, I'm going to be talking about Muslims in Rwanda. Just last month, I went to Rwanda for three weeks to serve with an organization called Ambassadors Football. I met the leader when he was here doing a fundraising trip, and he invited me and my sister, Isabel, to come and serve alongside him, playing and coaching soccer and encouraging the youth to develop their football skills and to grow in their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, as you guys know, I study Islam, and so I was fascinated by the Muslim population that I got to see in Rwanda. Rwanda is a majority Christian nation, but they have a growing minority of Muslims. And our daily commute um, actually took us through the Muslim quarters in the capital city of Kigali. And so I, yeah, I got to see Muslims. I didn't get to interact too often, but there were some Muslims in the uh, community projects that we were a part of because they're reaching out to everybody and everybody is welcome to come uh, play soccer and learn about God. So when I got home from that trip, I had to write my finals and I could choose any topic that I wanted um, to study for Islam. And so I chose to look more in depth um, about the Muslim population in Rwanda. While we were there, we would drive past this mosque and it is so beautiful. Go look it up because I don't have a way of showing you guys pictures, but it's called the Masjid Al-Fatah. And it's Rwanda's largest and oldest mosque. And it was built in 1913, which is like right when only like a few years after Islam even came to Rwanda. But it's a bright green and white mosque. So very unique. Definitely stands out from the rest of Kigali and the architecture. And it's really beautiful. So very cool to see that. And so one day when we were, you know, driving past this mosque, I asked the pastor we were with just, you know, about Muslims and about their presence in Rwanda. And, you know, one thing that he said was that the Muslim quarters were the safest places to be during the Rwandan genocide that took place in 1994. So that was just like a really interesting thing to say and just made me so curious and since I was already taking this class I was like I'm gonna research first like is that true and second if that is true why was it true so that was the premise of my paper and I think it's super interesting and I hope that you guys find it interesting too and that we can like draw some things out of this maybe niche topic, but that can like apply to us wherever we are in the world today. So what I found when I was doing my research was that, yes, it is true. The Muslim quarters were some of the safest places to be during the Rwandan genocide. And I'll get into more about what the Rwandan genocide was and how um, that came to take place. But the Muslims did play a unique role. And because of that, their legacy in the genocide has completely changed 
their status in Rwanda society. They went from being a marginalized um, minority that had no representation in government and was really treated like second-class citizens to now being elevated to having a substantial political presence and to being equals in society because of the rebuilding that has taken place since the genocide. And so what was really fascinating to learn was that this marginalized status that they've had for 100 years um, since Islam first came to the country and like the end of the 19th century, this allowed a strong religious identity to trump the ethnic divisions that led to the genocide and made um, this Muslim population stand out and have a different legacy than the rest of the nation. And so my, you know, my big takeaway from learning all this was for, you know, people in the West who are often bombarded by media messages that equate Islam with violence um, is to look at this specific case of Islam being a force for peace and uh, a resistance to violence in Rwanda as, you know, an example of the potential that Islam holds for promoting peace. And also, I just think this this example is really important for us to have accurate um, um, understanding of the diversity of Islam around the world and to uh, find common ground between Christians and Muslims in our value for uh, having peace in our world. So I'm going to start with some background on the Muslim population in Rwanda. Islam came to East Africa pretty early on. Um, Islam began in the 600s. So it's believed that through trade, Islam was brought to the east coast of Africa from the Arabian Peninsula as early as 800 or 900 AD. And so what happened was through trade um, between the Arabian Peninsula and the east coast of Africa, that's where Swahili culture developed. If you guys are familiar with the language Swahili, it's the national language in Kenya and Tanzania. But that was not made an official language until uh, the 1960s. So prior to that, Swahili was uh, primarily a term that distinguished a culture uh, more than a language. And it was almost always tied to being Muslim. I, I didn't know that, actually. I've been like exposed to Swahili from travels to Africa before, but I didn't know that historically uh, being Swahili was tied to being Muslim. Uh, that has since changed since the 1960s because it's been made a national language. But this is just important to know historically. And Swahili's Muslims were um, Sunni, which is one of the two branches of Islam. And they follow the Shafi law. So that's just a little bit about uh, the general um, brand of Islam that we're going to find in East Africa. And so Islam got to Rwanda through trade caravans that would come from the Swahili coastland into the African interior. So, so Rwanda is, it is technically East Africa, but it's central. It has no coast. It's landlocked. So, and it's very, very mountainous. So it was pretty much protected from 
a lot of external influences. Uh, historically, the monarchy had a very strong army that was very wary of foreigners. So it resisted the penetration of foreigners for a lot longer than the neighboring nations of Congo, Burundi, Uganda, Tanzania. Eventually, uh, it's in 1899 that Islam makes it into Rwanda. And this was the year that Rwanda was colonized by Germany. And so one of the ways in which Islam spread uh, through Rwanda was that the German military had had hired African soldiers from the Swahili coast to, you know, supplement their military and um, be a part of the colonization effort. And so Muslim soldiers began to settle in Rwanda and also, this process opened up the trade routes for Muslim merchants to come and also settle in Rwanda. And so Muslims began to have a presence there. They were seen as outsiders, um, not only religiously, but also because of, you know, Swahili culture versus Rwandan culture. And they were kept on the outside, the margins of society. They spoke a different language. And therefore, their religious beliefs were not incorporated into the local religious oral traditions. So basically, Muslim traders and whoever ended up converting to Islam, they were restricted to specific neighborhoods, much like the neighborhood that I had driven through just a month ago. So that's an example of one of the the neighborhoods that Muslims were all, you know, congregated in. And under the German colonial government, Muslims actually experienced quite a bit of tolerance. There were restrictions such as, you know, trade restrictions and specific taxes that were put on um, Muslim teachers of the Quran. But in comparison to the treatment that Muslims received under the, you know, the Belgium colonial rule, that comes later. Uh, the German rule was was pretty benign towards Muslims. They were allowed to just live on the margins um, quite pre- peacefully. But then, going forward in during World War One, nineteen sixteen, Rwanda was taken from the Germans and given to the Belgians, and. Belgium had a much harsher policy towards Muslims than the Germans did, and they they perceived Islam in a very general way as anti-West, and they saw that Islam was a threat you know, culturally, politically, and economically. Um, a big issue was polygamy. They believed that polygamy really made Islam attracted to Africans, um, and then it gave them an anti-West uh, feeling. It was also believed that, um, you know, because all these mer- a lot of the merchants were Muslim, they were just a huge comp- competition for the colonial government. And when they were suffering because of, you know, the the money that they spent during the two world wars, the... African merchants were doing well. So that created some tension and competition did not help uh, their policy towards Muslims there. And then also simultaneously, there had been, you know, Catholic and Protestant missionaries presence there. And there's obviously um, 
some tension between them and the Muslims in their, you know, missionary efforts that conflicted with one another. So, under the Belgian colonial rule, Muslims were not seen as Rwandan. They were seen as Swahili and foreigners, and therefore had no representation in government. And the, the Muslim communities began to, you know, kind of self-govern because they were excluded from the traditional chief structures. And so they kind of had their own little separate communities within, within Rwanda. So Rwanda got its independence from Belgium in 1962. And at this point, there were two parties that were fighting for control of Rwanda, and that's the Hutu Party and the Tutsi Party. And these are two ethnic groups. So they were in conflict with one another. But historically, Hutu and Tutsi were not distinguishing ethnic identities, but rather class. Uh, they were class distinction. So Hutu was the poor majority, whereas Tutsi was the ruling class. And when the Belgians took colonial, um, set up their colonial control of Rwanda, they partnered with the ruling class, so the Tutsis, and elevated them above the rest of society and, as a way of exercising, um, you know, control over the population. And so this created a lot of hostility between the two groups. And what also happened was the Belgium colonial government, um, they saw this distinction that was already there, and then they racialized it. And they said that um, anyone who had I actually learned this at the Rwandan Genocide Memorial while I was in Rwanda. Um, anyone who had 10 or more cows was a Tutsi, and anyone who had less than 10 cows was a Hutu. And from that point on, um, that family lineage was then one race or the other. And that's because cows are really important um, distinguishers of uh, wealth, and status in Rwanda culture. So this class distinction was racialized under the Belgian rule. And as a result of that, when Rwanda got their independence in 1962, the majority Hutu class who had been very oppressed under you know, the Belgium and Tutsi partnership, they really rebelled um, and took out a lot of that hostility on the Tutsi. Um, and that was the beginning of the, the ethnic violence that characterized Rwanda for the next several decades between the independence and the genocide that happened in 94. So in 1990, that is when the civil war broke out in Rwanda between these two parties. And as the civil war was going on, there was a lot of anti-Tutsi propaganda going on as well. And that just started to create an environment of ethnic hate, um, which was the precursor for the genocide. And so on April 6th, 1994, the president of Rwanda was in his in his airplane was shot down 
And within one hour of this plane being shot down, um, the Hutu militia began to systematically kill uh, Tutsi citizens. And at first, this was just something being carried out by the militia. But eventually, over the course of the next 100 days, um, Hutu citizens joined in as well. And the goal of this killing was to eradicate the Tutsi race from Rwanda. And I think the estimates is um, around 800,000 people were murdered within 100 days. And at the end of this 100 days, the Tutsi political party leader was able to um, defeat the Hutu militia and take control of the country. And that is uh, Paul Kagambe, and that is the current president of Rwanda. So he has been president since 1994 when he stopped the genocide. So that is just the background and the setting um, for what happened in the genocide. I looked for evidence that this is actually true. And for some of the reasons why Muslim neighborhoods would have been the safest places to be during the genocide. What I found was, sadly, in comparison to evidence that really incriminates the Christians who were complicit or participated in the genocide. For example, whereas some churches were filled with bodies, no one died in a mosque, and no Muslim religious leaders were charged or arrested for genocidal crimes, whereas many Christian leaders actually participated and were found guilty. One story that I found in multiple places was, quote, if a Hutu Muslim tried to kill someone hidden in our neighborhoods, he would first be asked to take the Holy Quran and tear it apart to renounce his faith. No Muslim dared to violate the Holy Book, and this saved a lot of us. So there was a lot of incentive within the Muslim communities to discourage the killings. And this is because they believed a true Muslim would not be killing his neighbor. In addition, um, there's evidence of Muslims hiding Tutsis and refusing to reveal where they were hiding. Um, if Muslims and non-Muslim Tutsis could make it to the Muslim quarters, they were protected. Roadblocks were set up and false information was given to deter perpetrators from entering the Muslim quarters. And other stories include Muslims hiding people in ceilings and using veils and scarves to disguise the women as well as paying off militia to avoid their neighborhoods. While some Muslims verbally confronted killers, there were also those who stood up and fought against um, the militia who were trying to reach the Tutsis who were hiding among them. There's one very powerful example of the village of Mabare, where 300 Muslims courageously fought to their own peril against 7,000 killers. 
and they were unsuccessful, but the story of their bravery was an example of courage and sacrifice that was made to protect others. There's also stories of Muslims who joined the militia as spies, and by doing so, were able to bring some of the Tutsis to safety in the Muslim neighborhoods. This is not to say that the Muslims were the only people who protected Tutsis. No, there were people of every religion who were brave and who fought to protect the vulnerable. But what was unique about the Muslims was that their efforts were collective, whereas the majority of other efforts were very isolated events. So there was something distinct about the Muslim community acting in this way of being resistant to the violence and acting to protect others. One of the reasons that I found for this unique behavior was that prior to the genocide beginning, Muslim leaders actually prepared their communities for passive resistance. So they took preventative measures by correcting one another and members of their community if they perceived that they were becoming negatively influenced by the extreme politics at the time. In addition, school teachers were enlisted to spread messages of nonviolence. And when the situation was escalating, Muslim leaders wrote letters to the government and tried to step outside their own communities to influence wider society. So this is not to say also that all Muslims are innocent because there are Muslims who were genocidal perpetrators and this is important because we never want to romanticize something or um, give a false impression of one group of people there was a diversity of responses there are people who opposed the genocide ignored it tried to help people and people that actually uh, participated in the genocide there was the author of the Hutu Ten Commandments, which was a propaganda document that just so obviously was used to spread anti-Tutsi hate. And this was written by a Muslim. Um, in addition, there was the village of Gahang. Gary, which is a Muslim village right next to the village that I previously mentioned of Mabare. And whereas the Muslims in Mabare were very courageous, the Muslims in Gahangari were, were not at all and did, did not help uh, the victims in their village. So this is just to show that the response was not monolithic, but diverse. But the point that is that was being made and that I found evidence for was that while acts of violence by Muslims, there are some, those were isolated, but the acts of resistance were communal. So this shows that, yes, there were Muslims who participated, but the legacy of Muslim communities was one of benevolence in comparison to the actions of the rest of the country. There is also criticism of the Muslims because their attitude towards the conflict as it was escalating was that it was their war 
not ours. This is because they were never recognized as being truly Rwandan. And so this really sidelined them from the conflict. And in addition, when they could have probably made more efforts to help um, the the victims, they this mentality of seeing it as their wars, their war and not ours, um, deterred them from going beyond their own community. And so when the leaders wrote letters to the government, that was really the one thing that they did to try to prevent the violence. But um, the argument could be made that they could have made better use of their resources, such as their national um, radio program, to try to counter the ethnic propaganda and try to prevent the genocide. One of the factors that contributed to Muslims' action of nonviolence and decision to help others was their religious beliefs. So the Quran teaches Muslims that killing one person is equivalent to killing all of humanity. They also teach that all people, regardless of race and ethnicity, are equal. And Muslims are also instructed to protect the weak and assist people who are discriminated against. So these are obviously important religious values that the Muslim community were able to draw from as things that informed their response to the genocide. But the question that faces us is why was the Muslim teaching of nonviolence able to take root, whereas the Christians was not? Christians have the very much the same teachings, yet the legacy of Christians was one that was much more complicit than the Muslims were. And so this really is has to do with the fact that the majority of Rwandans were identifying as Christian at the time and were affiliated with the Catholic Church. But the sheer numbers resulted in a lack of Bible re- a personal Bible reading and a faith that was reduced to the exposure they had in church on Sundays. So whereas the Christianity became something that was much more of a cultural thing, Muslims were isolated and in very tight-knit communities where they would pray five times a day. And this this reality brought Muslims under the spiritual guidance of their leaders in a much more intimate fashion. And so they were able to exercise influence that Christian leaders were not able to over their congregations. In addition, the Christian church was very intertwined with the politics of the time, whereas the Muslim communities were largely self-governing and, as I've said, insulated from the conflicts that were characterizing the nation. And so these Muslim communities cultivated a deep sense of their religious identity, and this allowed their religious values to win out when confronted by uh, ethnic division and ethnic polarization. So in Christianity, there is the injunction from Christ to be in the world, but not of the world. And 
one really interesting point that was made in my research that I found was that it was actually the Muslims who somehow were able to be in Rwanda without being of Rwanda. So they were able to be in that nation but have a distinct religious identity which allowed them to live with different morals and values so that when the time came they were able to act differently than the majority of society around them. So after the genocide the Rwandan government set about to rebuild Rwanda and one of the ways in which they tried to do this, or have tried to do this, is by erasing the ethnic identities that divided people and by giving all religious communities equal standing. And so this has really benefited the Muslim community, and they have been elevated greatly in their social and political standings. So Muslims are now seen as Rwandan, and they're also held up as an example of ethnic unity for the nation. So you can see how giving equality to Muslims really fit within the Rwandan government's agenda of creating a new Rwanda in which all people are equal. Muslims have gained visibility, and their Muslim leaders are now playing a large part in uh, Rwandan politics. And as a result of this, they have been able to greatly contribute to efforts for healing and reconciliation in the nation. And as a result, um, there have been multiple interfaith initiatives between Muslims and Christians as they have been united in their same goal of healing and reconciling Rwanda. So one of the ways in which Muslim leaders have been able to do this is by drawing on their own religious tradition. And the theological concept that has proved to be really important for them is the concept of jihad. And jihad is a idea in Islam that it has two definitions. So on one hand, it is defined as the expansion and defense of Islam. And this is the idea that we in the West are most familiar with. So a lot of people, when they hear the word jihad, they're thinking of Islamic empires in the past um, who conquered a lot of other people or of violent Islamic extremists today that believe they are participating in jihad um, by trying to spread Islam across the world through violence. Um, however, is jihad in Islam has another level of definition, and this means um, self-mastery or the fight against one's own passions. And this is the definition of jihad in which, which is being utilized in Rwanda. So in Rwanda, jihad means in the context of healing from the genocide, jihad is being used to describe the fight um, that Rwandans and Muslim Rwandans have to fight against discrimination and ethnic hate and to look introspectively and eliminate that ethnic hate that resides within themselves. And so by healing themselves, they can contribute to healing society. So this was an idea that was 
expressed by the Muslim leader of Rwanda. Um, as he described, it is our struggle to heal. Our jihad is to start respecting each other and living as Rwandans and as Muslims. We have our own jihad, and that is our war against ignorance between Hutu and Tutsi. So this idea of jihad reconciliation is one that um, Muslims are able to draw from their own tradition and has been able to help them frame their efforts for reconciliation, but it's been difficult to go beyond the Muslim community to the rest of society that's majority Christian. And so the second theological concept that's important here is the idea of mashaha. And this is the concept of public good in Islam, which can correlate to the idea of what's best for a nation. And so this idea is very much in line with the efforts of the government to rebuild Rwanda. And so Muslim leaders have the opportunity to share um, their efforts for reconciliation within the context of Mashaha. So sharing their jihad for reconciliation for the promotion of public good. And so in this way, people of any religious background um, can learn from and join in these joint efforts um, for the creation of one society uh, for the good of all. And so in Christian theology, reconciliation is a very central point. And so recognizing that Islam and Christianity have this shared goal opens the door for a lot of interfaith partnerships and the creation of organizations that can promote healing, especially in a place that has experienced so much uh, pain and suffering. Two examples of interfaith organizations that are working for reconciliation in Rwanda are the National Committee for Christian Muslim Relations and the Interfaith Commission. I have three major takeaways from this research that I've done on the Muslim population in Rwanda during and after the Rwandan genocide. First of all is the example that Muslims set for what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. Muslims in Rwanda were able to hold on to their religious identity and their religious values amidst a very tumultuous political culture that was extremely divisive and ended in a lot of violence between two polarized groups. In the polarizing political context of today in the West, specifically the United States, where I'm from, this is an example to all of us of the importance of the higher religious values of peace and nonviolence and equality and unity that are just so important to hold on to when the political environment we're living in can become so divisive and pit people against each other. The second takeaway is just the fact that Muslims care a lot about peace and it is 
a value that is deeply ingrained in their religion. And it's important for Christians to recognize that and to see Muslims as potential partners in post-conflict reconciliation and healing. It's important for Christians and Muslims to recognize this shared value of peace and nonviolence so that different religious groups aren't seeing each other as enemies, but as potential partners for promoting peace within their own societies. And lastly, it's important for us to recognize the theology within the Islamic tradition for reconciliation. And as we've been able to explore the idea of jihad reconciliation and this fight against one's own evil desires and one own, one's own evil tendencies and to find a parallel within Christianity of this call to not live in one's flesh, but to be a new creation in Christ and to bear the fruit of the Spirit. In Islam, they believe that this ability to fight against one's own passions and evil desires lies within oneself. While in Christianity, we recognize that we don't have that power and we need God's help to empower us to do that and that that happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's important to recognize this joint desire to be made new and to not give in to one's own evil nature that's found in both religious traditions. But by recognizing our differences, we can also hold out hope to our Muslim neighbors and friends and invite them to accept the Holy Spirit for themselves as the power that God offers us to make us new and to transform our hearts and to heal us from the inside out. While the history of Christianity in Rwanda is a very difficult and painful one, the gospel is hope for reconciliation between humanity and God, no matter what the history is of Christianity or Islam in any community. And so Rwanda being a majority Christian nation is in just as much need of the gospel as parts of the world that have barely any Christians at all. As a Christian, I believe that it is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that human beings are reconciled to God and that the Holy Spirit is reconciling the world to God in an ongoing process until Jesus Christ returns again. And so learning from the benevolence of Muslims during and after the Rwandan genocide, we can see their heart for peace and their heart to um, be healed personally and as a nation. And by sharing the gospel and inviting the Holy Spirit into those efforts and into that desire of their hearts, um, we can invite them to greater fulfillment and into deeper relationship with God. This 
is Madeline Bertu, and you've been listening to my new podcast, On Mission for God in the Real World. Please follow this podcast on Spotify, and on each episode, there's a place where you can send me your questions and your feedback. So I'd love it if you guys would do that. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day and a great week. God bless. Thank you.